Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This podcast contains references to sexual assault and criminal violence. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Australia on this day. I'm Michael Adams, and today we're heading back to Thursday, the 7th of July, 1960. That was the day that eight year old schoolboy Graham Thorne was kidnapped from a street in Bondi. And it was the day that Rupert Murdoch saw a story that could boost his flagging Sydney newspaper fortunes in much the same way that a strangely similar crime had boosted his father Keith's media career four decades earlier. The abduction of Graham Thorne was triggered by what should have been life-changing good luck for his parents. On the 1st of June 1960, middle-class Bondi couple Basil and Frieda Thorne won first prize in the £100,000 lottery that had been set up by the New South Wales government to help pay for the Sydney Opera House. Simply adjusted for inflation, that £100,000 is $3 million today, but an even better measure is back then you could buy a modest house for £8,000. Mr and Mrs Thorne were told they'd get the money by the 7th of July, and as was common back then, their names were published in the newspapers. Their young son Graham went to Scots College, and each morning he'd walk from the Thorne family home to a nearby intersection, where he'd wait for a lift from a neighbour whose kids were also students at the school. But on the 7th of July, when the woman got to this meeting point at 8.30am, Graham was nowhere to be seen. The concerned neighbour soon raised the alarm with his mother and she quickly called Bondi Police. A sergeant came to the Thorn home and he was there when the phone rang and a man with an accent said he had Graham. The detective posed as Basil Thorn, who was that day away on business, and listened as the caller demanded a £25,000 ransom or, quote, the boy will be fed to the sharks. There was another phone call from the kidnapper 12 hours later, but he hung up before giving any instructions about where the ransom money should be delivered. After that, ominously, there was no further contact. By the night of the 7th of July, the late edition of the Daily Mirror newspaper had the front page scoop that Graham Thorne had been kidnapped and a ransom demand had been made. The next day, Basil Thorne, who'd returned urgently from his business trip and told detectives to offer the entire 100000 lottery prize to the kidnapper next time he called, made an emotional plea for the TV news cameras. He said, quote, If the person who has my son is a father and has children of his own, all I can say is, for God's sake, send him back to me in one piece. Under immense pressure to find the boy, Sydney police worked around the clock. Detectives used every method and technique then at their disposal, from classic pounding the pavement to what were then cutting-edge forensics. Questioning Mr and Mrs Thorne, police learned that in the middle of June, a stranger had come to their flat and said he was a private investigator looking into the affairs of someone who used to live at their place. In light of Graham's abduction, this now looked like the kidnapper had been doing some reconnaissance. 
Meanwhile, a couple who'd been driving near the corner at the time Graham was abducted recalled seeing an iridescent blue 1955 Ford Custom Line sedan. So police started questioning the 4,000 New South Wales owners of such vehicles, whatever the colour, which was an immense task in the days before computers. There was another development when Graham's school case and his school cap were found on the side of a major road through a bushland stretch of the northern suburb of French's Forest. After that, though, there was nothing. Not until five weeks after he disappeared, on the 16th of August, 1960, when Mr and Mrs Thorne received the worst news possible. Their son's body had been found under a shelf of rock in a vacant allotment in Seaforth, about a mile from where his cap and case had been recovered. Graham was still in his school uniform, wrist tied, a gag around his neck, and he'd suffered a skull fracture. Police believed he'd died of asphyxiation and or this head injury. The discovery was tragic, but the body and clues left behind also were the police's best chance of catching Graham's killer. The extent of decomposition, the growth of fungi on Graham's shoes, and the presence and development of fly larvae suggested he'd been killed within 24 hours of being taken, and this would align with the kidnapper suddenly ceasing to make contact. Graham's body had been wrapped in a rug identified as one of 3,000 that had been made in South Australia in late 1955 and early 1956. More importantly, the rug bore forensic evidence, hair from a Pekingese-style dog, grey human hair that had been dyed blonde, foliage from two distinct species of cypress shrubs, and soil that contained pink fragments of limestone mortar. The foliage and soil didn't come from the vacant allotment where he'd been found. From everything they'd learned, detectives believed they were after a man with an accent who drove a 1955 blue Ford Custom Line sedan. They believed he was married to a woman with dyed blonde hair, that they owned a Pekingese-style dog and lived in a house that was set high off soil containing pink limestone mortar and perhaps adjacent or surrounded by these two specific types of cypress shrub. They thought Graham's body was kept under the house before being wrapped in the blanket and dumped. Further, given where Graham's body and possessions had been found, police thought the perpetrator likely lived near Seaforth. So detectives hit the footpaths of these northern suburbs, looking for a house that fit the profile. It could have been Needle and Haystack, if not for a local postman who also happened to be an amateur botanist. This post he pointed the police to a house in Clontarf, two miles from where Graham's body was found. Visiting the house on the 3rd of October, detectives found that it was built on a high foundation with a garage underneath, and the garage was flanked by specimens of the shrubs they were looking for. Inside the garage, there was a door that led into the foundation where the soil was impregnated with pink mortar fragments. At the time Graham had been kidnapped, the house had been occupied by Stephen Leslie Bradley, a Hungarian immigrant, he spoke English with an accent, and his wife Magda had dyed blonde hair. By the time the police got to the house in Clontarf, Stephen and Magda had sold the house, moved briefly into a flat in Manly, and just a week ago left Australia on a boat with their three children bound for London via Sri Lanka. They also learned that Stephen Bradley had just sold his car, an iridescent blue 1955 Ford Custom Line. 
turned out that Bradley had been interviewed earlier in the case when he was living in Manly and wasn't investigated further because he had what sounded like a credible alibi for his movements on the day that Graham had been taken. Locating the custom line at a car sales yard, police found a hairbrush in the boot that bore dog hairs identical to those on the rug. In the car, they also found dyed blonde human hairs, the same as those in evidence. The Bradley's Pekingese-style dog, which they'd left behind, was located and its hair was also a match. There was other circumstantial evidence to suggest the Bradleys had owned the rug that Graham was wrapped in. But the real clincher came when a torn-up roll of 35mm photographic negatives was found in the garden of the flat they'd taken in Manly. When the police developed these negatives, one of the pictures showed the rug at a family picnic. Graham's parents and their neighbour were shown a lineup of photos and all three picked out Stephen Bradley as the man who'd come to the building posing as a private detective. The witnesses who'd seen the custom line also identified him as the driver of that vehicle. Stephen Bradley might have been half a world away, but it wasn't far enough. When he stepped off the boat in Sri Lanka, he was arrested and after a five-week extradition process was returned to Sydney. Stephen Bradley made a written confession in which he admitted to having posed as a private detective and taking Graham. But he claimed that the boy's death had been accidental because he'd suffocated in the boot of the car. He said he'd then panicked and dumped the body. Detectives did not accept this at all, not least because it didn't account for the skull fracture. They also did an elaborate experiment in which a police officer breathed the air of a car boot for seven hours using a face mask and a tube to determine whether there'd still be sufficient oxygen to sustain life. And there was. When Stephen Bradley went to trial at Central Criminal Court on the 20th of March 1961, he pleaded not guilty, claiming he'd made the confession because detectives had threatened his Holocaust survivor wife and he didn't think she'd be able to handle such stress. The witness and forensic evidence, however, was irrefutable and the jury found him guilty. In court, ageing gangster matriarch Kate Lee of 1930s razor gang infamy shouted out, Feed him to the sharks. Bradley was sentenced to life behind bars and he died in Goulburn Jail of a heart attack in 1968 at the age of 42. The Graham Thorne case is pretty well known, both for the ruthlessness of Bradley's crime and cover-up and for the superb police work that brought him to justice. What's not as well known is the role the Graham Thorne case played in helping Rupert Murdoch build News Corporation into one of the world's biggest and most influential media companies, and how a similar child murder 40 years earlier had helped his father Keith Murdoch build his reputation as one of Australia's top newspaper men. As we've heard, the Daily Mirror got the Graham Thorne scoop, and this was due to the work of veteran police reporter Bill Jenkins. On the 7th of July 1960, the Daily Mirror and its new owner desperately needed just such a story. Young Rupert Murdoch, who'd previously confined his newspaper operations to Adelaide and Perth, had only two months earlier taken a huge risk by spending a fortune to buy the Mirror as his way of getting into the Sydney daily newspaper market. But the Mirror was then running a poor second to rival tabloid The Sun. Then... Bill Jenkins scooped the opposition to get the Graham Thorne story. In his 1992 memoir, As Crimes Go By, Jenkins recalled, quote, 
the Thorn kidnapping was splashed all over the front page of the late edition of The Mirror, leaving The Sun well in our wake. In the days and weeks that followed, the reporter and his colleagues scored successive scoops and this firmly established the Daily Mirror as a rag to be reckoned with. In his book, Jenkins explained, You could say the Mirror had one foot in the grave at the time and it was this continuing story that saved us from annihilation. Rupert Murdoch was a hands-on owner at this point, leading editorial conferences and planning the coverage and allocation of resources. Much as he would decades later with Fox News, Murdoch even turned his star reporters into crusading personalities while denigrating the competition as being weak. Dubbing Jenkins and the six other Mirror Men investigating the Graham Thorne case as the Unbeatables, Murdoch ran a photo of the team with the headline, The Men Who Are Giving You The Facts. And he even wrote the accompanying article, boasting that his Mirror Men had reported every angle of the case first, often two days before the competition, and that every other newspaper was simply playing catch-up. Bill Jenkins was nothing if not a fan of Rupert Murdoch. The introduction to his book was written by his former boss turned billionaire. But even this loyal tabloid man balked at what Murdoch did later in the Thorn case. Bill Jenkins had learned that police were about to issue a warrant for Stephen Bradley. But his police contact had told him this in confidence, saying it couldn't see print because it might tip off the wanted man. When Jenkins let something vague slip in the Mirror office the next morning, he told his editor that it just couldn't be used because it might blow the case and besides, it would forever ruin his reputation with the cops. But when Rupert Murdoch learned of this, he ordered that the next edition's front page was going to carry the news. Seeing another chance to crush the sun, Murdoch also picked up the phone and ordered advertising time on radio stations to trumpet the Mirror's latest Graham Thorne scoop. The thing was, Rupert Murdoch knew better than anyone how such a story could translate into power and profit. That's because 40 years earlier, his father Keith Murdoch, as editor of Melbourne's Herald newspaper, had carried out a very similar campaign. After the Great War and his famous Gallipoli letter, Keith resumed work for a cable news service in London, where he befriended the English press baron Lord Northcliffe, who was the proprietor of the Daily Mail. Keith Murdoch never forgot the key piece of advice his mentor gave him on how to increase a newspaper's circulation. Quote, Find a good murder story. Back in Melbourne in January 1921, Keith Murdoch was made editor of the Herald. In the next 12 months, he only boosted circulation from 120,000 to 128,000. But on New Year's Eve, the body of 12-year-old Alma Turchki was found in the city's gun alley. She'd been sexually assaulted and murdered, and the Herald had the scoop to itself over the weekend. Keith Murdoch himself wrote an editorial that included this, quote, A monster exists in this city free to indulge bestial and brutal instincts, the monster who murdered little Alma Turchki in the heart of the city. No doubt it was a horrendous crime, but the Herald went on a zealous crusade that increased pressure on the police to make a quick arrest. When the state government offered a £250 reward, Murdoch declared it insufficient and offered £250 of the Herald's money. In this environment, detectives nabbed a wine bar owner named Colin Ross, and he denied he'd had anything to do with the girl's death. 
Just as his son Rupert would do with the unbeatables, Keith Murdoch used this arrest to boost circulation and congratulate himself. Here's the Herald on the 13th of January, 1922. The charge of murder was not laid until sometime after the ordinary final edition of the Herald went to press, and it was then determined at short notice to publish a special edition. The well-organised arrangements of the Herald Publishing Department and its motor fleet were put to a special test. Supplies of the papers were distributed throughout the city and suburbs by means of train, tram and motor services, the distribution extending as far as Geelong, Ferntree Gully and Alinda, and to Ballarat. The papers in every place were eagerly purchased and newsboys were rushed. Today, the public interest continued unabated, so much so that it was decided to issue a special edition at midday, containing a full report of the proceedings in the city court and interesting sketches and photographs. On the 14th of January, the Herald published Colin Ross's photo on the front page, which could prejudice his trial because so-called witnesses would be able to describe him accurately based on seeing this image. The Herald's minute-by-minute coverage, the forerunner to cable news's around-the-clock rolling news, didn't help Colin Ross's cause at all. This sensationalism, along with dodgy testimony from a cellmate to whom he supposedly confessed, helped create the public impression that he was guilty. Humphrey McQueen, in his 1978 book Social Sketches of Australia, wrote, quote, During those four months, Murdoch tried and convicted Ross on the front pages of the Herald. But the murder trial physical evidence that convinced the jury, almost unbelievably, given what would happen 40 years later in the Graham Thorne case, were hairs that had been found on a blanket in Colin Ross's home. Hairs that a scientist testified came from Alma Turchke's head. When Colin Ross went to the gallows on the 24th of April 1922, still protesting his innocence, the hangman botched the job so badly that he strangled slowly over 15 minutes. Nearly 75 years later, a librarian named Kevin Morgan, who was investigating the case, found those two hair samples in an old file in the Office of Public Prosecutions. Eventually, they were DNA tested. They weren't Almers, and in 2008, Colin Ross was posthumously pardoned. Back in 1921, though, Keith Murdoch had gotten what he wanted out of the case. Over the four months from murder to trial, the Herald circulation surged, hitting a peak of 235,000 before steadying to 140,000. Within a few years, Keith Murdoch had grown that to 200,000, he'd spearheaded the company's takeover of Melbourne Sun News Pictorial, and he was on his way to becoming a media mogul in his own right. In his book, Social Sketches of Australia, Humphrey McQueen also noted, quote, When the Herald moved to a larger building in Flinders Street, it was popularly known as the Colin Ross Memorial. When Keith Murdoch died in 1952, his son Rupert took over. But when the financial fallout of his father's passing settled, he was left with just the core company of News Limited and its principal asset, the Adelaide News. While Rupert Murdoch would grow his media interests modestly over the next eight years, it'd be Sydney's Daily Mirror, from the 7th of July 1960, bolstered by the Graham Thorne case, that'd be the engine room of News Limited's national and international growth into the billion-dollar News Corp behemoth we know today. 
I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Australia on This Day. Make sure you're subscribed to get every episode as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're after more tales from our fascinating history, check out my other show, Forgotten Australia. This podcast was produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. Thanks for listening and catch you tomorrow. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.